Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the seventh installment of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. Now, I want to start off this episode by sending my congratulations to the Los Angeles Dodgers for their World Series win. Although it pains me to see my prediction be completely wrong, the Dodgers fought hard against the Red Hot Rays and really deserve to win that championship. Anyway, on to this week's episode. Now, this week is kind of fun because I'm going to be going on a deep dive into the MLB's rulebook in an attempt to explain some of the weirdest rules that the MLB has seen in its pretty long career. I'll start off by talking about the strangest rules in baseball and trying to explain the idea behind them, what they actually mean in a game situation, and so on. So, let's get into it. First off, I want to talk about box. Now, box are one of those things that I'm not too sure many baseball fans truly understand. I mean, I know that I didn't much before I started to research the topic. All I really knew was that when runners are on base, a pitcher basically has to stay perfectly still. They can't move their shoulders when trying to look at a runner, and you have to step off the pitching rubber before attempting to make a throw to any base. I understand the point of the rule as well, because any sort of unfair advantage that the pitcher would have means that the players, means that the base runners would be picked off way more than they do. Now I know from experience that getting back to a base, even if you're four feet away from it, when the pitcher throws an 85 mile per hour strike to the first baseman, it's really difficult to get back. So having any sort of advantage would mean runners wouldn't have any chance. I mean, the entire rule is in place basically so that the pitchers can't deceive the runners at least as much as they used to be able to. Now, one common play that pitchers used to do a lot before it was outlawed in 2013 was to fake a throw to third base, which would in turn make the runner on first base kind of relax, and then the pitcher would immediately whip around and throw it to first base to try and catch that runner off guard. Now, if you think about it, it's a really genius plan, especially if the base runners have no idea what's going on. And honestly, luckily, yeah, it was outlawed. Now, a bot could be called if a pitcher makes any motion that is naturally associated with their pitching delivery, but they don't actually end up throwing the ball to the plate. So let's say that they're in the windup, they come set, and then start to make a motion towards the plate. They can't just all of a sudden throw to a different base. Even if a pitcher goes through their pitching motion to throw to first or third or second, it's still a bock. So in other words, a pitcher must step directly to a base with their foot off the rubber to make any throw. Also, if the pitcher picks up his leg that isn't on the rubber, he must deliver a pitch to the plate or second base if he steps off of the rubber. Bocks aren't always beneficial to the runners, however, and often it's a rule for the hitters. For example, if a pitcher tries to quick pitch or doesn't come to a complete stop between the time he enters the set position and then eventually delivers the ball, it becomes a no pitch and sometimes even called an automatic ball. Even if the pitcher drops the ball, unintentionally or not, it's considered a balk. And of course, if a pitcher intentionally delays the game by throwing to an unoccupied base or not touching the pitching rubber or something along those lines, well, you guessed it, that's also a balk. 
Like, if you think about it, there's a lot a pitcher has to really think about every pitch that they throw to make sure that they don't balk. Now, let's get into one of the weirdest and probably most controversial rules in baseball to this day. That, of course, would be the infield fly rule. Now, this rule is really strange because of the situation you have to be in in order to make it happen. Basically, the rule is in effect when there is either one or no outs, and there has to be runners on either first and second base or first, second, and third base. Then, the batted ball has to be a pop fly in fair territory. It can't be a line drive or a pop-up from an attempted bunt. The pop-up has to also be able to be caught by a fielder with ordinary effort or a routine play as we describe it. But even further than that, the pop-up has to be in the vicinity of the infield. So if a player is in the infield, including a pitcher or catcher or sometimes even an outfielder playing in, then the rule is in effect. So, so already you can tell that there's a lot that has to go right in order for this rule to be in effect. Finally, if it seems apparent that the fly ball will land in the infield in this situation, an umpire will immediately call the infield fly rule, often before the ball is even caught. At this point, the batter is out regardless of the ball being caught or not. So basically, if the infield fly rule is called and the player drops the ball, it doesn't matter, it still counts as an out, which is a kind of weird part about the rule. Sometimes, if the fly ball is near the foul line too, an umpire will call an infield fly rule if fair. Now, if the ball lands, a runner can take off at their own risk. Otherwise, they can try and tag up like any other regular pop fly, but since it's in the infield, it's pretty rare to see it. One strange caveat to the rule is even if a pop fly is called for the infield fly rule and ends up landing in foul territory completely untouched, then it's treated as a foul ball and it just turns out to be a strike on the batter, which makes sense. Now, this rule has to be put in place because before the rule was established, players would intentionally drop these pop flies in the infield to quickly throw to second and then have whoever's on second quickly throw it to first in order to get a double play. And after researching a bunch of these rules, I mean, you can kind of tell just how crafty baseball players can really be. The next rule we'll talk about has to do with obstruction. Now this is another really strange and incredibly complex rule that has again been extremely controversial as more pieces were added to it as time went on. For example, it was an obstruction call that caused the St. Louis Cardinals to walk off Game 3 of the World Series against the Boston Red Sox all the way back in 2013. Now, if you've never seen that video, it might be one of the wildest and most confusing 15 seconds of any World Series games. Now basically the play started off with a fielder's choice hit by John Jay to the second baseman Dustin Pedroia at the time, who threw it to the catcher to get the first out. Now as this was happening, the Cardinals first baseman Alan Craig was rounding second, going to third. So the Boston Red Sox catcher ended up picking up the ball after he tagged the runner out at the plate in the first place to third base, but the throw was wild. 
as Alan Craig tried to round third base because he saw the bad throw, he ended up tripping on the Red Sox third baseman Will Middlebrooks as he dove for the throw from the catcher. The left fielder ended up picking up the ball and firing it home, where the catcher tagged out Alan Craig. Now, he was technically out at the time, but since he tripped over the diving third baseman, it was called interference. So the run counted and the Cardinals ended up walking off game three in maybe the strangest fashion you could have imagined. So let's break that obstruction rule down a bit. Obstruction is an act by a fielder who is not in possession of the ball or is in the process of fielding the ball that impedes the base runner's progress. So in the case of World Series Game 3, Whittle Middlebrooks never technically had the ball but was in the process of getting it. So if Middlebrooks hadn't have dove in order to try and stop the throw, no call probably would have been made. The obstruction call is finalized by the umpire ruling the ball dead, meaning that the ball is out of play and any play resulting in it doesn't count. The same thing happens with the ground rule double. A ball is ruled dead if it goes over the fence after hitting the ground in play, which we'll kind of touch on a little bit later too. Therefore, an umpire is allowed to put runners on the bases as he sees fit. So since Craig was rounding third base, by the time the obstruction call happened, the umpire gave him home plate as well. Kind of weird, right? Now, as I was doing more and more research, I came up with a list of weird rules that don't really need much explanation, but just seem so strange and frankly hilarious that I felt necessary to put them in. For starters, let's say that there's a runner on third that is trying to steal home plate. Let's say the pitcher sees the runner take off from third base and throws a pitch towards home. Now, if the pitch is called a strike by the umpire and it hits the runner trying to steal home, the runner's out. Now here's the strange part of it. If there are two outs in the inning and two strikes on the batter and the throw from the pitcher home to try and get the runner is actually in the strike zone, the batter is called out on strikes and the run doesn't score if the ball ends up hitting the runner. However, if there are less than two outs and two strikes on the batter, the batter is still called out if the pitch is in the strike zone, but even if the runner gets hit by the ball, he still scores. So since the ball just hits the runner and the runner isn't tagged out in this situation, the ball is just considered a dead ball even though it crossed the strike zone and struck out the batter. <laughs> now, I don't know if I've ever seen this in the MLB, and frankly, I don't know if it's ever happened, but I would love to see that. <laughs> I mean, it obviously happened at least once, or they wouldn't have a rule on it. Now, I feel there's a bit of an unwritten rule in here somewhere in just having courtesy towards the batter. I mean, could you imagine if your teammate on third stole the plate and was safe, but you were called out on strikes at the same time because the pitch still entered the strike zone? I, I mean, would you be happy or would you be mad? I mean, yes, your team is now up by another run, but also he just made you strike out. I mean, you didn't even have a chance to swing at the strike. <laughs> like, it's so crazy to me that this actually probably happened at some point. Now, I want you to think back to those times when you played baseball or read a baseball game and caught a ball with your baseball hat or shirt or whatever, whether it be a foul ball or, or a throw or whatever. Now, if you tried to do that during a game, at least in the MLB, you would be heavily penalized for doing it. 
If you touch the ball with your hat or a catcher's mask or really any part of your uniform, as MLB described it, detach from the proper place on your person, all runners, including the batter, advance three bases. Now, if it's a thrown ball, all runners would advance two bases. Now, I don't quite remember that from the Sandlot, but <laughs> it's a kind of funny rule to have. Now, earlier we talked about a dead ball and how a ground rule double affects the play. But we didn't talk about what happens if a ball is deflected off of a player and leaves the field of play. Now, the rule behind this says that if a fielder deflects a ball into the stands, fair or foul, it counts as a home run. Now, if the deflection of the ball happens within 250 feet or closer to home plate, it's just considered a ground rule double. And it's funny because this actually happens a lot more than you think it would. Back in 1993, the rule was used when a deep fly ball hit off the head of Rangers right fielder Jose Canseco's head and went over the right field wall. The ball never technically hit the ground, just off the bat, off Canseco's head, and over the wall. <laughs> Home run. Even more recently than that, Tigers left fielder Mike Matuk tried to save a hit that hit off of the top of the wall in left field. Now as he went up to try and grab it, it hit off of his hand and then went over the wall. Now the same rule is in effect if a fielder loses their glove with the ball in it if they try to rob a home run. I remember this pretty vividly when Mike Talkman on the Rockies went up to try and rob a home run and the home run ball ended up taking off his glove and going over the wall. And it still counted as a home run because, well, the ball went over the wall. And finally, one of my favorite, yet still really strange rules, is that if the ball gets stuck in either the catcher's mask or umpire's mask, or really any part of their equipment, like Yadier Molina's chest protector, the runner gets to advance a base. Now, I love this rule just because of how random it is. I mean, oftentimes, it's not even really the catcher's fault. The weird part about the rule is, if a ball gets stuck in the catcher's mask after a foul tip, it doesn't count as a catch. The catcher has to catch the foul tip in his glove if it's going to count as a strike. And that just kind of seems a bit strange to me. I mean, if a catcher were to catch a foul tip in the grid of his mask or his chest protector or something like that, I feel like that should count. But I guess that kind of goes back to that rule that we mentioned a little bit earlier, where, you know, catching the ball with any part of your uniform doesn't count. That's just kind of weird. I don't know. But anyway, I hope that I helped to clear up some confusion on some of the weird and complex rules in the MLB that we still have to deal with today. And it got me thinking about some of the apparent baseball rules that aren't written in any rulebook that you can find. So in next episode, I'm going to be talking about the unwritten rules of baseball and going through some of the meaning behind the sportsmanship that goes behind these rules. Thank you for listening.